This is 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you may hunt, you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you for good, for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm excited to introduce this morning's preacher, Ben Wilson. I had the pleasure of co-leading an ethos group with Ben this past year. Um, ben is a professor at Moody Bible Institute, and he and his lovely wife, Rachel, just recently adopted their baby daughter, Evangeline, from Oklahoma. Um, and so now I will welcome Ben and turn it over to him.
Got a mic already. Thank you very much, Aaron, for the introduction. Like Aaron said, my name is Ben Wilson. I do work at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, My wife, Rachel, and I live over in Edgewater. We've been coming to this church for about a year. Uh, Our little daughter, uh, Evangeline, is about three months old, so our hands have been full with that. It's been a lot of fun. Now, what Aaron didn't tell you is that at Moody, I teach entirely New Testament classes. And as you just saw with that passage that we just read, we're going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament in in Scripture. Uh, So I think it would probably be best if we began with a prayer. And uh, why don't you join me, pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. And as we look today at the story of these men who lived 3,000 years ago, it's humbling to recognize how relatable how immediately relevant to our lives this story is. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice. Would you give me a mouth to speak truth from Scripture? And by your Spirit, would you work this truth into our lives so that we live differently? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Jealousy, manipulation, betrayal, revenge. What happens when you hear those words? Maybe you see a face, that friend who talked behind your back. Maybe that business partner who drained your life savings. Maybe it's that uncle, you violated your trust, stole your innocence. Maybe that special someone who left you broken inside. Maybe there's a feeling too, anger. Your heart's racing, you're starting to sweat. It's getting hot in here. Grief. It happened years ago, but if you think about it long enough, you might even start to cry. These aren't just words. Jealousy, manipulation, betrayal. These are daggers that cut to the deepest part of who you are. What would you do if you had the chance to get even with that friend, that uncle, that ex? Would you take it? Revenge. Or would that just be justice? What's the difference? What do we owe to the people who wrong us? When our paths cross, what are we supposed to do? Confront? Avoid? Pretend everything's okay? Just be a nice person? How would God want us to act toward the people who do us wrong? Maybe you've thought about that question before. Maybe you're wrestling with it right now. If you haven't thought about it yet, life is going to hit you with it someday. When our paths cross, how would God want us to act toward the people who do us wrong. Well, today, we're going to be looking at a story from 1 Samuel where David is confronted with that exact question. He crosses paths with a man who has taken everything from him. And in that moment, he has to decide how he's going to respond. Will he get his revenge? Will he run and hide? Will he slap on a plastic smile, just pretend everything is okay? The story is told in 1 Samuel 24, We read it already. We can go ahead and turn to that passage if you haven't opened up your Bibles yet. And uh, just hold your finger right there, 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to get to that passage eventually. But to really get a feel for the narrative, to understand the point of the story, you've got to know the context. So before we talk about our passage, I just want to spend a little bit of time today looking at what happens to David by the time we find him hiding out in a cave at the beginning of 1 Samuel 24. All right, so hold your finger in that passage, and let's just talk a little bit about the rise and fall of David in 1 Samuel. There was a time 
when David had everything. Nice job, good friends, sweet house. He was living the dream. National hero. After David had killed Goliath, he was put in charge of the entire military for the nation of Israel. And he was so wildly successful at what he was doing that people were literally writing songs about this guy. He had it all. He was working directly with the king, Saul. He was best friends with the king's son, Jonathan. He would have lived in a royal residence. And God had even promised David that one day he was going to be king over the nation of Israel. But then Saul, the king, became jealous, felt threatened by David's success, was insecure. He couldn't stand how everything seemed to go right for David. And that jealousy and that fear drove Saul to do everything in his power to try to destroy David's life over and over and over, even though David had never done anything wrong. So what I want to do right now is just walk you through a progression of all the different things that Saul does to try to destroy David's life. And as I'm doing that, I just want you to think about and try to sympathize with David and think about what are the emotions he must have experienced as all of this was going on. Okay? Well, first of all, One of the ways that Saul tries to destroy David's life is by sabotaging his career. Tries to ruin his job. Remember, we just said that David was the commander at one point over the entire Israelite army. uh, Equivalent of being the chief of staff over the armed forces. And if you think about it, that's a pretty nice job. That means he would have lived in the capital, would have worked directly in the king's court. He would have had an office at the Pentagon, so to speak. Nice job, very little direct danger with a lot of perks. But then once Saul became jealous and saw David's success, he decided that he was going to try to sabotage David's career. 1 Samuel chapter 18 tells us Saul gave David a demotion. Why don't we just turn over that passage real quick and and look at this. I want you to see how Saul is afraid of David's success And that leads him to sabotage David's career. 1 Samuel chapter 18, start reading in verse 12. twelve. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Now, Saul sees David's success, sees that the Lord's favor is on him. He recognizes that and decides to remove David from his presence and send him back onto the battlefield, making him this commander over a detachment of soldiers. Now, that might not sound too bad to you. It's still a leadership role, right? But you've got to recognize this is a major demotion for David. He used to be the number one guy, giving orders for everybody, conducting the big-picture strategic operations for the military. Now, he's back on the battlefield, in the line of danger, taking orders from somebody else. And it's Saul's insecurities that put him there. But a funny thing happens. Saul's plan actually backfires. David is successful in battle, and because of the increased visibility of this role, he actually ends up being more popular after the demotion than he had been before. Just keep reading in verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So Saul's plan to sabotage David's career doesn't work out so well. But Saul doesn't give up. He's too jealous, too fearful. And so if he can't put a dent in David's popularity by sabotaging his job, he's going to have to get rid of him some other way. 
And Saul decides that maybe he can manipulate David into a little bit more of a dangerous situation. Saul decides he's going to try to use David's loyalty against him and manipulate him into a situation where he'll get killed in battle. It's this really conniving ploy. Check it out, starting in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I'll give her to you for a wife. Only, here's the catch, be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. I recognize there are a lot of tough-to-pronounce names in that passage, but can you see what a conniving, what a manipulative thing Saul is doing here? He's taking David's loyalty, and he's using it against him. He knows that David is so loyal to his king, to his country, that it would be a great honor for David to marry one of the king's daughters. And so Saul decides, and he's so blinded by his jealousy that he has no problem using one of his own children just as a pawn to get to David. And so he decides he'll offer his daughter Merab in marriage to David on the condition that David will keep fighting these battles. And what Saul hopes is just that David will get killed in one of these battles and then he won't have to worry about it anymore. Cold, calculated manipulation. And did you notice when Saul's plan doesn't work out and David doesn't get killed in battle, then Saul just backs out of the deal. There in verse 19, he, uh, he ends up just giving his daughter to somebody else, this Adriel, the Moholophite, as a wife. Pretty rotten thing to do. You ask a man to risk his life for something, and then you don't give it to him whenever he follows through on his end of the deal. Cold-hearted deceit and manipulation. How do you think David felt? Think you might have had a little bit of anger? Well, when Saul's plan doesn't work out the first time, he thinks, maybe I can just play it back and try it again another time with my other daughter, Michael. And so that's what the text describes uh, in verses 20 through 29. Different daughter, but same exact plan. And uh, we don't have time to read that today, but uh, bottom line is the plan doesn't work. Uh, David doesn't get killed in battle. And the second time, David actually does marry Saul's daughter. Saul is in the situation where he has to give his daughter as a wife to David. So it's actually kind of comical. Saul is burning with hatred for this man. He's tried to sabotage his career. He's tried multiple times to manipulate him into these dangerous situations where he'll get himself killed. And the end result of all of these ploys is that David winds up becoming a part of Saul's family. Saul wanted to get him killed, ended up making him his son-in-law. And it's driving Saul crazy. If you've ever seen the movie, What About Bob? Yeah, Saul is basically Richard Dreyfuss's character in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. I can tell by the lack of reaction of a lot of younger people. That's a somewhat dated reference, but uh, <laughs> you really ought to check that movie out. It's, it's pretty funny, okay? All right, well, anyway, Saul has tried to sabotage David's career. He's tried ma- repeatedly to manipulate him into these dangerous situations. None of it's worked. Okay, so Saul's next step is outright betrayal. Saul decides to try to come up with a plot to assassinate David by his best friend, Jonathan. 
Jump down to chapter 19 and just look at the beginning of verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, to all his servants, that they should kill David. Saul has gone from veiled manipulation to outright betrayal. Any pretense that Saul cares at all about David now is just out the window. David is Saul's loyal servant, his son's best friend, his daughter's husband, and Saul wants to get him assassinated. You think you've got in-law problems? Got nothing on David. Outright betrayal. And uh, we don't have time to read the rest of the story, but Jonathan doesn't go along with Saul's plot here, warns David, tries to talk some sense into his dad for a little while, things are actually okay. But ultimately, Saul is so consumed by his jealousy of David that he decides he's going to try to kill Saul, sorry, kill David with his own hands. Jump down to verse 8 here in the passage. And there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul has gone from trying to sabotage David's career to manipulating him into these dangerous situations, betraying him, trying to arrange for his assassination, and now he tries to kill him with his own hands. This is actually the third time that Saul has tried to kill David. Now, thankfully, Saul has the aim of a stormtrooper. Throws spears all over the place, never hits a thing, so David escapes. But this is important. This is actually the last time that Saul and David are in each other's presence until our passage for today, five chapters later, in 1 Samuel 24. And from this point on, David is a man on the run. He has to leave behind his family, his friends, his job, his house. Saul takes everything from him. Jealousy, manipulation, betrayal. That's the story of Saul and David. David used to have everything. Now he has nothing. He used to be the most popular man in the nation. For the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, he's living as an exile. David used to be the commander over the whole Israelite military. Now, in chapter 22, if you just jump forward a little bit, you find out that he's leading a band of mercenaries and social outcasts. David used to live in a royal residence. Now, in chapters 22 and 23, in our passage for today, chapter 24, He's living in caves and deserts, and Saul is trying to hunt him down. Crazy part is, David never even did anything to deserve it. Always faithful, always loyal, did everything Saul ever asked. Saul is determined to destroy David's life. Jealousy, manipulation, betrayal. That's the context for our passage today and the encounter between Saul and in David, in 1 Samuel 24. Go to where you've been holding your spot, uh, 1 Samuel 24, and let's look at that passage. 1 Samuel 24. By the time we come to this point in the story, David has lost everything. 
And he's hiding out in just about the most remote location that he could be within the land of Israel. It's a place called En Gedi. And from where Saul is located, it's literally across a desert, over a range of mountains, in a rocky cliff area on the edge of the Dead Sea. Now let's see what happens at the beginning of the chapter. Starting at verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. So Saul finds out about David's location, takes 3,000 of his best men, these chosen men, out of all of Israel, and goes across the desert over a range of mountains to go hunting for Saul. Okay, keep reading. Verse 3, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. All right, so Saul's got to go, you got to go. And so takes a little break, goes into a cave. Now, the Hebrew euphemism here is a bit more colorful than our sanitized English translations. In the Hebrew, it literally says that David went in to cover his feet. And you just think about a guy wearing a robe and then squatting down. That would be the image. Uh, it's kind of the Hebrew equivalent of phrases like dropping a deuce, building a log cabin, Disposing of hazardous waste, dropping the kids off at the pool, charming the upside-down brown snake. My wife's just shaking her head. (laughs) It's in the Bible, and it's supposed to be kind of comical. Saul is pooping, okay? Saul is pooping. Middle of verse 3, keep reading. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Stop right there. Remember the context. Jealousy. Manipulation. Betrayal. This is David's chance to get even with Saul. It's time for payback. He's never going to have a better opportunity than right now to get revenge. It's so perfect, in fact, that David's men think it must be arranged by God, as though the Lord himself has providentially orchestrated this encounter for David to bring Saul, this wicked man, to justice, like the angel of vengeance, the Count of Monte Cristo. Look again at verse 4 and what David's men say to him. Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Step inside the story. What do you do? Here's a man you loved, a man you risked your life for, a man you viewed as family. He violated your trust. He manipulated you. He did everything he could to destroy your life. You've lost your job. You've lost your home lost your family, your friends, your reputation, all because of this wicked man. Last time you saw the guy, he was trying to kill you. And now he's squatting in front of you. You're watching him poop, trying to decide what to do. Mind's racing, heart's pounding, hand on your sword is sweating. In that moment, how does God want you to act toward this person who's done you wrong? Do you get revenge? Do you just hide in the cave, 
hope that Saul never sees you and leaves the cave without ever even knowing that the two of you were in each other's presence? Let's see what David does here in the passage. Middle of verse 4. Then David arose to do what? To kill? To run and hide? Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That's not what we're expecting. What's going on here? Keep reading. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, some of your English translations there might say, for the first part of verse 5, that uh, David's conscience struck him, or he was conscience-stricken. You know, the Hebrew here really is a lot more visceral, more physical than that. It literally does say that the heart of David struck him. And I believe that literally means that David was experiencing a physical reaction to the stress of this situation. Heart palpitations. Something like a panic attack. That social anxiety, that physical and emotional discomfort that you feel just from being in the presence of somebody who has hurt you deeply. You know what that's like. That's what David is experiencing right here. We'll see in just a minute why he cuts off a corner of that robe. Keep reading in verse 6. He says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up, left the cave, went on his way. David lets him go. More than that, David actually speaks up in Saul's defense and prevents these other guys from harming him. That's how David acts towards this enemy who's done him so much wrong. It's kind of shocking. It's unbelievable that David would do this. And he's not done yet. You know, this is principled leadership. This is integrity. You remember earlier that Saul uh, tried to get some henchmen to do his dirty work for him. David here, after everything that's happened between these two men, somehow finds a way to speak up in Saul's defense. And it gets even more surprising. Keep reading in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose, went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand, my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. In other words, David's saying, wicked people do wicked things. Verse 13, but my hand, my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. 
and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So not only does David refrain from taking revenge himself, and then not only does he speak up in Saul's defense and prevent harm to Saul, but now David comes out of the cave in this posture of vulnerability, bowing down with his face to the ground, and he reaches out for reconciliation with Saul. That's what David does toward this man who's done him so much wrong. Don't miss how shocking, how scandalous this is. What David is doing here is very risky. You you would probably even call this reckless. Remember earlier in the passage, back up in verse 2, it tells us that Saul has with him 3,000 elite force soldiers. And if you were to read around in the surrounding context of this passage, what you discover is that David only has 600 men with him here in this cave. So Saul's forces outnumber David's five to one. On top of that, David has just given to Saul a clear tactical advantage. David's come running out of this cave, so now Saul knows exactly where all of David's men are located. All Saul has to do is give one word, and David's a dead man. After everything that's happened between these two men, David is taking his own life, the life of all of his men. He's just putting it into Saul's hand. He's reaching out, making himself vulnerable, trying to be reconciled to Saul. That's vulnerability. And by the way, look at how David addresses Saul. This man is a cheat, a liar, an attempted murderer, How's David going to talk to him? Verse 6, calls him the Lord's anointed. Verse 8, my Lord, the king. Verse 10, the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, my father. You know, I could think of plenty of other names to call Saul if I were David. And yet here we see David addressing Saul in the most respectful way possible. Saul hadn't acted like a father to David, and yet David appeals to him on the basis of that relationship. When their paths cross, David reaches out and takes a radical risk and seeks to turn his enemy into his friend. Doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't run and hide, try to avoid Saul. When their paths cross, He reaches out to turn his enemy into his friend. I don't know what the Saul in your life has done to you. Maybe the pain is fresh. Maybe you've been carrying it around for decades. Maybe like David, you get heart palpitations just being in the presence of that ex, that friend, that relative. Maybe you're getting heart palpitations right now just thinking about it. The next time your paths cross, what are you going to do? Get revenge? Hide? Or will you follow the example of David? Take a risk, make yourself vulnerable, and reach out to try to make your enemy into your friend. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's not like it's guaranteed to turn out well. I'm going to be honest. If you read the rest of this story, 
You know, uh, it's not like the story of Saul and David has a happily ever after kind of ending. You know, in this passage, Saul does break down and he weeps in David's presence. But ultimately, Saul is a broken man. And David and Saul, they never regain a lasting relationship. Your attempts at reconciliation, they're not going to come with any guarantees. It's a risky thing to do. But just think about it a little bit. What are your other options? What else are you going to do? Try to get revenge, take justice into your own hands, get even? You know, if David gets even with Saul in this passage, he plunges the nation of Israel into civil war. And you know what? He might win that war, he might lose that war, but either way, there will be blood. And that's usually the cost of revenge. Messy, bloody war. Some of you are so angry right now at that person in your life that you think that's what you want. You better watch out. It might feel good for a minute, but there's going to be a high price to pay at the end. Broken relationships, broken families, broken lives, and revenge is not going to do anything to heal the pain, fix the wounds. What about hiding, avoiding, running away? It's another option, but the problem there is it never ends. If David hides from Saul this time, he just prolongs his existence as a man on the run. This exile who's estranged from everything that he cares about in life. Always going to be looking over his shoulder, exhausted. Some of you have been hiding for a really long time. You know what I'm talking about. You're exhausted, haunted, imprisoned by your past. You hide this time. You might end up hiding for the rest of your life. David got it right. It's dangerous when we cross paths with our enemies. The best thing that we can do is take a risk, make ourselves vulnerable, and reach out to try to make your enemy into your friend. Now you might be thinking, what does that even look like? You know, I'm probably not going to be in a cave while my nemesis is pooping. So does that mean I just pretend that nothing ever happened between us? Do I just let everything go? No, you don't do that. And that's not what David does in this passage. It's really important to notice how David approaches Saul. He doesn't avoid the issues. Yes, David makes himself vulnerable and he seeks reconciliation. But seeking reconciliation doesn't mean sweeping everything under the rug. David doesn't avoid any issues here. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He very respectfully and yet very directly addresses the reality of the situation. Look again at the passage and just notice how, how David very directly confronts Saul about his behavior. Verse 9. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you. I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, but you hunt my life to take it. David's not sugarcoating anything here. He's seeking reconciliation. Yes, he's making himself vulnerable. 
But if there's going to be a reconciliation between these two parties, then Saul is going to have to own up to what he's done. And true reconciliation requires for both parties involved to acknowledge as best they can the reality of the situation. That means that you have the right, you have the obligation even, to confront that person in your life about their behavior. Now you do that respectfully. You do that in an appropriate setting. You do that with a willingness to be reconciled. But you do it. Now, it's really hard to do that well. It's not going to feel natural. In fact, it's going to feel very unnatural, like you're going against every fiber of your being to reach out in respect and with a genuine desire to be reconciled to someone. So where do you find the strength to do something like that? How is it even possible? This is so important. Notice in the passage what enables David to reach out to Saul. The key to the whole text. Don't miss this. Very important. David is able to reach out to Saul because he has his heart fixed on the God who brings justice and delivers on his promises. He takes God at his word. That's what enables David to reach out to Saul. Just look at the passage and how David tries to orient the conversation around God and his standard of justice. Verse 9, why do you listen to the words of men? Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. Again and again, David brings the focus back to the Lord. You think that was easy for David to do? There was a gaping chasm in David's life between what God had promised and the reality of his present experience at that moment. God had promised that David was going to be king over the whole nation of Israel. David was living in a cave as an exile. Where's the justice in that? And yet all through these last several chapters of David's suffering in 1 Samuel, David remained faithful, kept his heart fixed on God's promises, and that's what enables David in this moment to reach out to Saul with his heart fixed on God's justice. If David didn't have his heart fixed on the promises of God, there's no way he puts himself in that kind of situation. Vulnerability requires a major step of faith. And in the end, if you read all of 1 and 2 Samuel, God comes through. And he proves the wisdom of what David does in this passage. Read the rest of the story. Saul gets killed in battle. David becomes king. Nation of Israel, it experiences its greatest period of unity and prosperity throughout its whole national history. God comes through. But none of that happens if David doesn't have his heart fixed on God's promises here in the cave. It all comes down to taking God at his word. What enables us to do this very difficult, this very dangerous work of reconciliation is that bedrock convicted conviction that God is a God of justice who delivers on his promises. Think about what God has promised. God says in his word that everything will be worked together for the good of those who love him. God says in his word that he's a God of justice who punishes sin. God says in his word that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Do you trust him? 
If you don't trust that God can make things right and set things the way they're supposed to be and deliver on what he said, then one of two things is going to happen. One, you might get caught up in petty revenge because you're going to try to take matters into your own hand and get justice for yourself. Other option is you're going to be paralyzed by fear because you're going to be so afraid of getting hurt again. You've got to fix your heart on the character and promises of God. Take him at his word. He knows your pain, he sees your hurt, and he cares and he has a plan. Trust him. Take God at his word. It's the only way. Only way you're going to find the strength to take a risk and reach out to try and make your enemy your friend. Next time your paths cross, jealousy, manipulation, betrayal, your heart's going to be pounding. Probably going to want to give the cold shoulder. I want to be sarcastic. Maybe you want to run and hide. Probably going to want to get the last word. In that moment, keep your heart fixed on the character and promises of God. Then you'll be able to reach out and try to make your enemy into your friend. Let's pray. Dear God, in your word you promise that all things work together for the good of those who love you. In your word you tell us that you are a God of justice, that you punish sin, that vengeance belongs to you. Yet if we're honest, Lord, there are parts in all of us where that truth that we know about you in our heads isn't being lived out in our lives, hasn't sunk deeply enough into our hearts. Lord, would you take these promises, help us, Lord, maybe write them down, maybe they commit them to memory, may they press them into the deepest parts of who we are until they become the guiding force of our lives. And help us to reach out and work towards reconciliation that we might make our enemies into our friends. Amen.